Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? I don't know about you. I'm, I'm one of those people whenever uh, I don't get to like sing in the congregation often. I feel like I say this every time. I'm never prepared for it uh, whenever I preach. And so I'm always standing back right there like bawling my eyes out. Uh, and so it may look like I'm like, oh, yeah, just going through the things whenever I'm here. It's just because my, my hands are, you know, tied to my guitar. But back there, man, I was just I was just brought to tears. So hopefully it's just not a well of emotion the whole time I'm up here. But you never know, you know, at least it'll be loud. Okay, so <laughs> go ahead, turn to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 through 11, like we just read. While we do that, uh, I'm going to talk to you about wine, you know, because why not? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> if you know me at all, you'll know that I, I have a particular passion about wine. I love uh, drinking wine, talking about wine, educating other people about wine. And this really became a passion of mine uh, several years ago when I worked for this, uh, for this restaurant, this cool little restaurant. It was kind of this upscale, kind of snobby, uh, unique restaurant. And when I say it was cool, it was like, you know, we got write-ups in D Magazine and uh, it was called the best new restaurant in DFW. Like it was, it was cool, it was, a, it was a cool restaurant. But one of the coolest things we did was we, we had this thing called a chef's table. And if you're not familiar with that, that's basically where you pay a bunch of money, hundreds of dollars, to sit too close to the kitchen and have the chef basically make you whatever he wants. Okay, and it's always gonna be good. It's always gonna be really good food, uh, like six courses, but he just kind of decides that night, I'm gonna make them this. And that's what he brings you. And you spend a lot of money to do that. And my job was to pair uh, wine with every single course, with all six courses, and I would find out that day, this is what I'm making today, figure it out. And so that was fun. But that meant I had, to, I had to know what I was doing. I had to spend a lot of time studying wine, learning about wine, because when people were enjoying their meal, they would wanna ask me questions. Where's this from? How should it taste? Why did you pick it for this food? So I had, I had to really educate myself. And so I, like even you know, reading books, going to these little online classes that the, the restaurant paid for and uh, you know, memorizing wine lists from all of these restaurants around the world. And so it was a lot, it was a lot of work, but I, I loved it because it helped me be able to help people really enjoy uh, that meal, this little special meal that they were having at our restaurant. But as I worked there, I also began to notice a pattern. And what I noticed is that there are two types of wine drinkers. There are two different types of wine drinkers. There are quick drinkers and slow drinkers. And what I mean by quick is not like they just get drunk and just like guzzle it down trying to get drunk or something. That's not what I mean. I mean people that don't even consider what they're doing. They kind of just, you pour them a glass of wine and they just go, Bleh. and that's, that's it. And that's all. They don't really think about what they're drinking. They don't think about how it goes with the food, anything like that. And then there's slow drinkers. And these people would really spend a lot of time. That's, you know, it'd take like five minutes before they even take a drink. They're smelling the glass. Where's this from? I'm like, oh, it's, it's from France. Yeah, it smells that way. And they would, they would really spend a ton of time considering it. Uh, but here's the thing I noticed. The slow drinkers, 100% of the time, enjoyed every aspect of the meal. They loved it. They, they, were, they loved every single thing that they ate, everything they drank. They were just, they loved it. They had a great time. Not so very often with the quick drinkers. Not so, because I, I'd be like, hey, this is a, you know, 2006 Cabernet Sauvignon. And they'd be, I don't like Cab. I'd be like, okay, why don't you try it? They'd take a gulp and they'd go, Ugh, yeah, I don't like Cab. And that was it. They wouldn't even think about it. They wouldn't consider it. They wouldn't even spend time to slow down long enough to think about it. All they had done is had a Cabernet once upon a time. They didn't like it. 
And so they said, oh, if it says Cabernet, I don't like it. It's yucky. And then they just couldn't get over that. They couldn't get over that hill whenever they were trying something new. And so if you can't tell, that drove me crazy. That drove me crazy because I worked hard. I'm like, this is what you need for that meal. And I worked so hard and they would just kind of throw my opinion away. So one day I'd had enough. And this man came in that was like, he was just the guy with the car and like the ridiculous cufflinks. He, he just, he thought he was awesome, you know? And he probably was awesome. He's paying a lot of money for a good meal. But I, I say, here's a Cabernet for you. And he goes, oh, I don't like Cab. Well, I'll just try it, see what you think. And he just was like, okay. Ugh, yep. Like all cabs, it tastes like burned grapes. That's what he said, which is, he's not smart. And so <laughs> I say, okay, what kind of wine do you like? He says, well, I like a Zinfandel. I prefer a Zin, you know, which under low restaurant lighting would have the appearance of a cab. If you, if you know where I'm going with this, I said, okay. So I took the bottle of cab away, got him a new glass, poured the cab in the glass, said, here's a very good Zin for you. He took a swig, he said, oh yeah, much better. <laughs> so... What you need to learn from that is don't trust any waiters ever, even if you're at a, a really nice place. Don't ever trust a waiter. But also that, that guy reminds me of how a lot of us approach this text this morning, which deals with the topic of spiritual gifts. A lot of us already have our minds made up. A lot of us already have our minds about what we believe, and especially what we don't believe regarding the gifts. And we're just prepared to just run through this text, just drink it down quickly because our minds are already made up. I, I, you know, I just don't like all this charismatic stuff, you know? I don't know where you are this morning, but my hope is that you'll slow down and consider rather than just running into 1 Corinthians 12, having already decided how this is supposed to go. I think there's, there's more here in this passage to appreciate than we often take the time to see and God's word isn't something that we should ever drink quickly. There's, there's every single word is filled with grace. And so if only we'll slow down to appreciate it. And so that's what I'm gonna hopefully do with us this morning. But I'll just disappoint many of you right now uh, at the beginning. I'm not gonna be giving a definition this week of every single, of one of the gifts. And I'm also not gonna be uh, talking about the debate between creationism and cessationism because 1 Corinthians 12 is going to continue to talk about the gifts for the next two chapters. And so we will get into that, but right now we're just gonna be slowing down. Got it? Disappointed? Perfect. <laughs> so let's uh, consider our verses this morning. First, let's pray. Lord, we need you, like we sang uh, this morning, we depend on you. Pray that we would recognize that this morning. Help us this morning as we consider your word to see our deep need for you, our deep need for your grace. And teach us to see rightly. Teach us to serve you humbly. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Lord, be with us now as we uh, study your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. 
Now, this kind of sounds like Paul is just giving some helpful information, some fun facts about spiritual gifts for the Corinthians. Uh, But that's not what he's doing. He's actually correcting, even rebuking the Corinthians for how they've been approaching the topic of spiritual gifts. In fact, he's going to spend our entire text today, as well as the next two chapters, like I mentioned, correcting their current practice of spiritual gifts. And uh, a lot of what we'll talk about, just so y'all know, is a lot of what we're talking about today isn't very obvious in our text because it's things that Paul's going to be elucidating. He's going to be talking more about as the letter continues. But we know that he's not just saying, hey, here's some helpful information, Corinthians. Instead, he's actually saying, I've heard some things. And from what I hear, when it comes to spiritual gifts, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. You are clearly uninformed, and I don't want you to be this way any longer. And so what is he referring to? What makes him think that when it comes to the things of the Spirit, the Corinthians are uninformed? Well, we'll be answering that question throughout our text this morning. We'll actually see that there are often a variety of ways, and we're going to list six of them, uh, six different ways they assume they know what they're doing. I'm sure, I'm sure that there's, uh, there's more we could list. So six ways that they err, and the first of which, how are the Corinthians uninformed when it comes to spiritual gifts. They assume that they know what they're doing. They just assume that they know what they're doing. They just know what they're doing. That's what they assume. If you were to give a quick read of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 11, all the passages leading up to our text this morning, you learn very quickly that the Corinthians are a very bold, very confident people. You know, go big or go home, or possibly go sleep with the temple prostitute. They just go full forward ahead. And sometimes they forward, they're just walking onward into sin. They're walking into sin and selfishness and divisions. And divisions among the Corinthians has been a consistent theme throughout this letter. Paul has rebuked the divisions among them several times. Because when it comes, when it comes to the preaching of the word, when it comes to you know, preaching God's word, they all pick their favorite teacher. This, this, this gift that's supposed to be given to the church for the edification of the church, what do the Corinthians do? They divide over the preaching of the word. And when it comes to communion, as we saw past two weeks, it's supposed to be a gift for the edification of the church. But what have the Corinthians done? They've made it a source of division. People selfishly treating themselves as superior and others in the church family as inferior. And as we'll see this morning, these gifts of the spirit, supposed to be for the edification, for the building up of the church. What have the Corinthians done? They've made them a source of division. Spiritual gifts have just become another criteria added to this Corinthian popularity contest to help make it really clear who's better and who's inferior. And some are doing everything they can just to rise to the top, outdoing one another, not in holiness, but in things like trying to speak in tongues. Trying to speak in tongues in the gathering, for example, or trying to prophesy in the gathering to say, look how spiritual I am, look at me, look at what I can do. Look what I can do. (laughs) And they're divided as a result. All the while assuming, we know what we're doing. We're crushing this. That's the context that Paul's writing to when he writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want things to continue like this any longer. There's divisions. You're not thinking correctly about these spiritual things. But in case they're unconvinced, Paul moves on in verse two. He notes that this wouldn't be the first time many of the Corinthians have been have thought incorrectly about spiritual things. Look at verse two. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. 
He says, do you remember when you were pagans, right? You, do you remember when you were, you were so spiritual and you were, you were doing all these things and making sacrifices in the temple and you were following these impressively spiritual teachers? You remember that? And were you not led astray? Were you not incorrect in your understanding of spiritual things? Because as pagans, the Corinthians were led astray by so-called wise teachers. They spoke of wonders and great mysteries, but those people led them to worship mute idols, wooden statues. And their mistake then was that they confused the talk of these, these really impressive people with power. They confused the talk with power. They listened to teachers who talked of the power of the gods and talked of great powerful mysteries and talked about how their way was the, the true way to the path, a true path to a good life. But where were they led? To powerless wooden statues, mute statues that did nothing. You're meant to see some irony here that they, they were convinced by big talkers to, to worship mute idols, things that had no power at all. And they made that mistake as pagans, but now they're Christians and they're making the same mistake again. The second way the Corinthians are uninformed when it comes to spiritual gifts is that they're confusing talk with power. They're confusing talk with power. They're confusing the ability to speak in tongues with spiritual maturity. Confusing the ability to do one cool spiritual thing with the power instead that comes from a life following and empowered by the Spirit. So speaking in tongues in the Corinthian context is kind of like the spiritual version of dunking a basketball. Which, interesting story, when I was in high school, uh, as you can tell by looking at me, I'm not good at playing basketball. Like, you don't really have to think about it. Look at these stubby legs, and you're like, he's probably not great. But all of my friends in high school loved to play basketball. And I just wanted to, you know, I just wanted to fit in with the crowd. But I'd always get picked last because, again, there's nothing really, nothing's going to happen. I'm terrible. And so I thought, but I, I want to be able to participate. So what should I do, you know? Did I study the fundamentals of the game? Did I study how to pass the ball and support my team or anything like that? No, that would be helpful. Instead, I bought, first off, I bought some basketball shoes that looked great. And second, me, I'm five foot eight, white dude, right? I did a bunch of leg presses and worked out until I could dunk, okay? And now I told the story to Jared, he was like, there is no way. So let me, I have very small hands. I can't palm a basketball, but what I could do is throw the ball up in the air, let it bounce on the court once and run up and dunk the ball. And that was really impressive to my friends. I mean, and, and even y'all are like, that would be crazy. Yeah, it's like watching a chihuahua jump over a horse. It was just like, <laughs> what? And I would do that as I warmed up. I wasn't even warming up. I would just be like, oh, well, what's this? Ah, bam, you know? And everybody was like, wow, this dude could ball. Like, I, I want him on my team. Could I? Nope. I could not. I could do some, one thing really impressive, but as far as helping my team out, nothing. I had nothing. And to this day, you want to play basketball with me, you'll see I can get sweaty, but I'm not very good. The Corinthians, when it comes to spiritual things, are being wowed by these guys are really impressive. They speak in tongues and they're just listening to and trusting and following the loudest talkers in the room with the coolest gifts, not realizing that they're actually being led astray. Specifically, they're being led away from the instruction and the teaching of Paul. Paul wrote early in the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 through 20. For though you have countless guides in Christ, 
these very impressive people. You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me, Paul says, not of the spiritual guides, of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I'll come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. When the Corinthians were pagans, they were led astray by all talk, mute idols, no power. All talk, no power. And it's no different with those among the Corinthians who are dividing the church, propping themselves up as better than or superior to others in the church because of their amazing spiritual gifts. There's a lot of talk coming out of these people's mouths, but where's the power? Or to put it another way, what's the fruit of all their talk? They look like power to the Corinthians, but what's the fruit? Division, selfishness, a me first mentality. That's not fruit that comes from the spirit. That's not a manifestation of the spirit. That's not power to be proud of. That's weakness to be ashamed of. And so Paul says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, don't make the same mistake twice now that you're Christians. Don't judge leaders in the church by their talk. That's your only criteria. You might be led astray. If I could just say something, there are a lot of talkers in Christianity. Loud voices, bold, controversial men. Oh, I love the way these guys just say it. They're not afraid. That's cool, but the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk. It consists of power. And you need to slow down and consider the power behind all the talk of your favorite bold Christian leaders. And what I mean by that is you don't need the power of the Spirit of God to be controversial. You don't need the power of the Spirit of God to build a Twitter following or have a YouTube channel. You can do all that without the Spirit empowering you. What do you need the Spirit for? What do you need the the power that comes from the Spirit of God? What does that look like? Not just talk, but power. And the power of the Spirit looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How many of your favorite Christian talkers are leading you there? Or are they leading you astray? Are you following bold talkers towards power that looks like self-righteousness and anger and anxiety and impatience and resentment and rudeness and arrogance and and pride and being right and irritation and distrust of everyone and telling everybody that they're the only ones that are sane in the world anymore? It's easy to be led astray by loud talkers. But don't just examine the talk, examine the power. Examine their life, examine the fruit. So Paul reminds the Corinthians, they were once led astray by loud talkers and they were pagans. And he hopes that he won't make the same mistake again to instead follow those who are empowered by the spirit. And so then you ask, well, Paul, what does that look like? What is, what is the talk of those who have the power of the spirit sound like? Verse three, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, this seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? Did the Corinthians somehow know that obviously someone going around saying Jesus is cursed is 
not a Christian, they're not speaking in the Holy Spirit. Is that really the, Paul, the, the point that Paul's making here? I don't think so, although that's one way you can interpret this, but this is actually a, a very highly debated verse. Have you ever heard us uh, say that in 1 Corinthians? Very highly debated, hard to interpret, blah, blah, blah. We say that every week. But there are actually several ways you can interpret verse three. Uh, one commentator actually gives 12 actual uh, different possible interpretations, which is unhelpful. Thanks for nothing. <clears throat> So rather than go through all 12 of these potential interpretations, I'll just give you the one that I think is best. And if you want to know about the other ones or talk about the other ones, send me an email. We can meet or I can give you some books. Uh, but before I go into the interpretation, hear this. All the interpretations agree in regard to this. No Christian should go around saying Jesus is accursed and all Christians should view Jesus as Lord, right? There's no, there's no significant doctrine here that's getting that's getting mixed up in different interpretations, okay? Everyone agrees on that. So the differences in interpretations are more about the specific context that Paul's addressing. So just don't renounce your faith over differences in a very, very minor detail. That being said, here's what I think Paul's saying. The criteria, criteria the Corinthians are using to judge whether or not someone is empowered by the Holy Spirit are things like this. Can they speak in tongues or prophesy? And Paul's saying, nope, your scale is broken. Tongues and prophecy are, are not definitive proofs of the Spirit. Doing these things does not necessarily mean that someone's speaking the Spirit. So don't, don't treat the Spirit like some sort of mystical being that you can conjure up to bring about the miraculous. Now, the Spirit's not moved by the wills of men. Rather, the wills of men are moved by the Spirit. And the Spirit's power is best summed up by once, the once rebellious wills of men who once declared Jesus is accursed, now being moved by the Spirit, those same rebellious men being transformed to declare Jesus is Lord. That's the miraculous power of the Spirit. How do you know that you're witnessing a miraculous display of spiritual power when men confess and women, Jesus is Lord? That's miraculous. This great confession of the early church, Romans 10, 9, Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the confession that unites all in the church. We're all saved under this one confession that Jesus is Lord. He is, he is everything. He's my master and I, I live to obey him. No one can truly say that. Jesus is Lord no one can live by this confession except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sure, anybody can say Jesus is Lord. That's not Paul's point. Rather, those who live according to this confession are living in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're like me, I think this is a little surprising. You know, I'm gearing up for Paul to talk about what does true power look like? Ah, oh, it's better than prophecy in tongues alone. I'm getting excited. Okay, what's it going to be, Paul? And he says, the person that says Jesus is Lord, who lives out that confession. That person's got the power of the Spirit. If you're like me, you're like, that's boring. That's not very exciting. And I think that's probably somewhat the underwhelming to the Corinthians as well, which demonstrates another issue in me and in the Corinthians that Paul's trying to address. How else are the Corinthians uninformed? Number three, they don't understand the Spirit's involvement in their lives. They don't understand the Spirit's deep involvement in their lives. In other words, the Corinthians, and I believe a lot of us as well, don't understand the miraculous gift we have 
in the Holy Spirit. Because his involvement's just the air we breathe. In the same way, there's an air conditioner on in here that's making sound, and y'all aren't aware of it until I mentioned it. Maybe you'll barely hear the but you're not aware. It's just the air you breathe. It's just, it's just what you're used to. The Spirit of God is so deeply involved in our lives, far more than just this outward display of gifts like tongues or prophecies. So don't reduce the Holy Spirit to that. He's deeply involved in our lives, whether we're aware of his involvement or not. In Random Soapbox, evangelical culture uh, in general has so avoided talking about the Spirit so that things don't get too crazy, that we've sort of gotten in the habit of being unaware of the Spirit's involvement at all in our lives. Sometimes we even avoid thinking about him out of fear that we'll get too charismatic. And so we find ourselves rarely spending time thinking about honoring or rejoicing in the gift of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit. But the Spirit of God is far more involved in your life than you can even comprehend. And so I wanna talk about that four ways. Way number one, the Spirit awakens you. The Spirit awakens you. We were all born in sin, spiritually dead, born self-obsessed, self-absorbed, dead to the life found in the kingdom of God, worse off than you can realize. And in a moment, the Spirit came upon you, made you alive. This was not your own doing, but a gift from God so that no one can boast, Paul says to the Ephesians. The Spirit awakened you to faith by grace. And I think a lot of us know that, you know? We tend to think of ourselves like a, like a car that was dead or maybe just turned off. And the Spirit came with the key, hopped in the driver's seat, turned on the engine, and he got us going, got us going again, bringing our engine to life. But don't let your understanding of the Spirit in there. It's incomplete because the Spirit doesn't just get you started. He actually guarantees that you'll keep going in the kingdom of God that your new life in the kingdom will never die. Because number two, the, the Spirit gives, grows, and sustains your affections for God. Gives, grows, and sustains your affections for God. If your initial affections for God are provided by the Spirit, then why wouldn't we think that he's going to provide the same affections day after day afterwards? In his spirit, God has given you himself to continually soften your heart, to continually increase your love for Christ, to continually live in obedience to Jesus our Lord, to continually do away with worldly desires and habits, to continually repent of sin and to ever be growing into and conforming to the image of Jesus. The spirit doesn't just start the engine. He gives your life the infinite supply of himself. God gives you himself, and he drives you to Christ. He's the fuel. He repairs you. Even when you try to go to other sources, he's the one that draws you back, sustains you so that you continue to grow in a knowledge and love of God. And he causes you to worship. Remember, you cannot confess Jesus as Lord apart from him. You can't do any of this life apart from him, which is why John Calvin said, we perceive how great our weakness is, as we cannot so much as move our tongue for the celebration of God's praise unless it be governed by the Spirit. The Spirit gives, grows, and sustains our affections, our love, our worship of God. But not only this, and this next one is really huge. The Spirit confirms and sustains God's love for you. 
The Spirit confirms and sustains God's love for you. Think about Jesus when he's baptized in the Jordan. You remember this story from the Gospels? Matthew's Gospel, it says, The Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested on Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you understand that the same Spirit has descended upon you? That the same Spirit, he's chosen to take up permanent residence in you. Do you understand that the Father says of you, this is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. The Father's heart is set on you through the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't just awaken you to faith. He doesn't only increase your affections for God. He doesn't only sustain those affections at no risk of them falling away, although that alone is its outrageous act of grace. But furthermore, he preaches, he testifies to your soul that you're a beloved child of the Father. The Father delights in you. He rejoices over you. You don't go to God as an employee goes to a, a boss. You go as a child who goes to their perfect, loving father, and none can snatch you away from that relationship. None can snatch you from that hand. This is your family. Can you imagine your life if you spent more time just listening to, this, to the voice of the Spirit through God's written word? That's what God's word is. That's what your Bible is. The Spirit speaking to you the love of the Father. Spirit confirms and sustains the Father's love for you. But then this love doesn't just sit within you. It can't. The infinite love of God cannot be contained. It's got to flow out. So finally, the Spirit flows out of you in love for Christ's bride. The Spirit flows out of you in love for Christ's bride. In the life of the Christian... The love that is poured into us from God is poured out for others. The God who loves us commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second command is to love your neighbor as yourself. The Spirit empowers us to obey Christ, be unified together in Christ, and to love one another. In other words, divisions in the church, people feeling superior to their brothers and sisters, demonstrates that the Corinthians have misunderstood the work of the Spirit in their lives. And like I said, I believe we struggle in the same way. This isn't all the ways the Spirit works in our lives, obviously. I'm only trying to move us beyond thinking of the Spirit as some sort of occasional spiritual party trick. You know, that he kind of shows up when the music swells in worship. Music swells can't sustain your love for God's church. But the deep involvement and power of the Spirit in your life can so Paul's answer, answer to the Corinthians as they clumsily try to interact with things of the Spirit is for them to understand the Spirit's work is not about a show. You can have a show and yet still curse Jesus. Rather, true spirit, true power in the Spirit flows out in a unified church, unified under one confession. Jesus is Lord. That's what it looks like to be powerfully filled by the Spirit. And now he stresses this unity as we continue with verses 4 through 6. Paul says there are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. He's saying there, there are more gifts than just tongues and prophecy. 
Yeah, there's, there's more than that. And they're, they're all just as empowered by the same spirit as tongues and prophecy. You can't think of yourself as, as superior as if you have this special connection with the spirit simply because you speak in tongues and others don't. God doesn't empower only the tongue speakers. God empowers all the gifts. And there's no one in the church who lacks gifts of the spirit. You see how he says that? He says he empowers them all in everyone. Powers his gifts. Not all of the gifts at the same time, but he powers gifts in everyone. Everyone has this relationship in the church to the spirit. So Paul's correcting their lopsided view of certain gifts, thinking that some are more or less empowered by the spirit based on what kind of gift they have. And so we see the fourth way that the Corinthians are uninformed when it comes to spiritual gifts is, number four, they're focusing on their, their gifts rather than the gift giver. They're focusing on their gifts rather than the gift giver. Paul's answer to the divisions over their gifts is look to God. Examine the gift giver. Notice how God works in a variety of ways. The giving of gifts like prophecy or tongues, that's given by God through the Spirit. The service of Jesus who bore our sins, that's another way we see the work of God. The activities of the Father, sending the Son, sending the Spirit. We see God work in our lives and in the church in a variety of ways. And therefore, we should expect the way that we work in the church to be various as well. When we focus on our gifts, we end up prioritizing those with what seem to be more valuable gifts and treating those with different gifts as inferior. Focusing on gifts just leads to arrogance and division, not the humility or love that God requires. And so Paul turns their attention away from the gifts and toward God, who works in a variety of ways. He says the Spirit brings the dead to life, for example. We, we have no faith apart from him. He declares God's love for us. He empowers us. Wow, that is impressive. The Spirit is amazing. Jesus, on the other hand, served. He washed feet. He fed people bread and fish. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And both Jesus and the Spirit, fully God, diversity of gifts, diversity of service, unity in God. Therefore, among members of God's church, whether the gift is impressive and awe-inspiring or lowly and humbly serving, picking up the crumbs after communion. Both come from God, both are equally valuable. Paul reinforces this later in chapter 12, verses 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 18, and verses 20 through 22. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. I'm better than you. You're worthless to me. Can't say that. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Who would say that the service of Jesus is unimportant? It was lowly. Didn't it appear weak? Wasn't it humble? Yet indispensable. No one would argue against that. Therefore, Treat the gifts and the service of the members of the church in the same way. Stop dividing and thinking of some as lesser and some as greater. Instead, unify around the common gift giver who is in himself unified. Worship the gift giver rather than dividing over the gifts he gives. In verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts of the Spirit are for the common good. 
contrasting what seems to be the practice of some of the Corinthians, wherein the gifts of the Spirit are for building up their own reputation. Gifts of the Spirit are meant to build up the church, not an individual status in the church. And so in this, how are the Corinthians uninformed? Number five, they're building up themselves rather than building up the church. They're building up themselves rather than building up the church. He already wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. No one, don't seek to build up yourself, seek to build up others, your neighbor. And then again in chapter 10, verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage to build myself up, but that of many, that they may be saved, to build up the church. And it'll go on for the next few chapters, stressing the importance of using gifts, not for your own advantage, but for others, to build up the church, not simply building yourself up. And so when it comes to the gift of speaking in tongues, listen to Paul's encouragement in chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. It says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, Corinthians, he says, so contrasting what you're currently doing, so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. As you use these gifts, strive to excel in building up the church because the manifestations of the Spirit are for the church, for the good of your neighbor, for the good of your family, not your own advantage. As one commentator, David Garland, writes, persons should not regard themselves as gifted and the manifestations in, in, of the Spirit in their lives should not be used to augment their image, prestige, or station in the community or to downgrade another's. The church was never meant to be a place to stroke your ego. Which, just think for a second, which characterizes how you think of yourself in your life or in the context of the Parkway Church? Do you think of yourself as a gifted person with all these talents that you wish people recognized and noticed and maybe appreciated more? You're hoping your giftedness will come out in conversations you're having after the service? Or do you think of yourself as a servant? that your giftings for the building up of the people around you, for the building up of the church? Are you excited to hear about how they're gifted rather than telling them how gifted you are? You ever notice how really successful CEOs have garbage family lives? Like these guys are outrageously gifted, guys like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, gifted dudes, but their lives are filled with divorce, infidelity, their kids hate them. How is it the guys that are so gifted at leading businesses, so terrible at leading their family? Because focusing on your gifts, focusing on your giftedness as an individual, that'll certainly get you a pay raise, but it cannot build the people up around you. What your family and your church family need from you is service, not giftedness. Your gifts are only as valuable as they're being used to build the people around you up. And so don't limit your service to the church in ways that will only build you up. Rather, use your gifts to build up the church wherever there's a need. By the way, did you know that we need children's volunteers? <laughs> That'll be 20 bucks, Carl. Okay, uh, your giftedness, your giftedness is for us, not for you. And likewise, these spiritual gifts that we're going to be diving into in the coming weeks are not for the stroking of one's ego, but rather are given by God for the sake of encouraging, edifying, equipping, and building up his church. Lastly, verses eight through 11. 
And just, by the way, how many times have you turned to this text? You hear, oh, we're studying spiritual gifts. You turn to this text and you completely skip over everything we just discussed. You just get right here to verse eight. Which superpowers did the Spirit give me? That's not Paul's point at all. It's important to slow down sometimes. Reading our Bibles, otherwise we might just remain uninformed. Verse eight. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. He stresses unity there. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I just notice a few things here. First, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of all the ways the Spirit works in the church. There's other lists in the New Testament that include other things. But again, we'll get more into what these gifts are actually referring to in the coming weeks. Okay, so come back. Second, these are things that are actually happening among the Corinthians that Paul considers to be clear manifestations of the Spirit that he wants to draw their attention to. He's saying, yes, tongues and prophecy. There's, there's tongues and prophecy, but there's more than tongues and prophecy going on in Corinth. Look at all these other ways the Spirit manifests himself in order to build up the church. And so Paul's point isn't for the Corinthians or us, for that matter, to come through this list and find out our superpower or our personality type whatever, nine wing seven, or whatever ridiculousness this is reduced to. That's not Paul's point. Rather, he wants them to stop treating tongues and prophecy as if they're greater or superior evidences of spirituality than any of these other miraculous gifts. All the gifts God gives by his spirit are equally empowered by the spirit for the purpose of edifying and encouraging and building up the church. And so this list is meant to be eye-opening to the Corinthians as Paul gives all of these other valuable manifestations of the Spirit. Because the sixth and final way we see the Corinthians are uninformed in regard to the gifts of the Spirit is that they're limiting the work of the Spirit. The Corinthians are limiting the work of the Spirit in their minds. They can't limit the Spirit, but in their minds, they're limiting, boxing them in. For example, how often do we, do we know of Jesus speaking in tongues? How often is that mentioned in the Gospels? Never that we, we know of. But Jesus did heal, and he did work miracles, and he did distinguish between spirits. Was he not gifted in the spirit? Would anyone make that argument? No. So then why are they so overemphasizing the gift of tongues? Why are the tongue speakers all of a sudden so much more valuable than others in the church? It's because they're limiting the work of the spirit. The Spirit working in certain ways is more important and more valuable to the Corinthians than the Spirit working in other ways because they've limited the work of the Spirit according to their preferences, cultural expectations, their comforts, their experiences, rather than considering the variety of ways the Spirit works in his church, in all in his church. And so Paul ends by drawing their attention once again in verse 11 to the fact that all these gifts, not just tongues and prophecy, are empowered by the Spirit. And they're not empowered according to people's status or popularity or strengths or preferences. No, they're empowered according to whose will? His will. The more noble church members don't get the more noble gifts 
Rather, he apportions these gifts and others to each member of the church according to his will for the sake of what will best serve and build the body. So just think to yourself, if the the Spirit was working powerfully in our midst, what would that look like in your mind? In the midst of this gathering, if the Spirit is working powerfully, what would that look like in your mind? And if you have a video playing in your mind, stop and think, what's informing that video? Is it Bible or experience? Be careful not to limit your view of the Spirit to what you're comfortable with or what you've experienced, or maybe to avoid what you feel nervous about. Don't limit the work of the Spirit according to your opinion. Limit and correct your opinion according to the biblical testimony regarding the work of the Spirit, which we'll be getting into in the coming weeks. Regardless of your view, hear Paul's encouragement that the manifestations of the Spirit have been given to all of us for the common good, for the sake of building up the church family. But don't use your gifts to serve your own advantage. Rather, strive to excel in building up the church, however you've been gifted, for the sake of encouraging, edifying, discipling, building up the church. And that's our passage for this morning. Come back in the coming weeks. And I would pray that you'd prepare your hearts for the coming weeks. Because when the spirit becomes a source of division in the church, something has gone terribly wrong. As we begin to talk about the gifts, if the Spirit becomes a source of division among us, something has gone terribly wrong and we're we're behaving like we're uninformed, just like the Corinthians. And so as we turn our attention to communion and unite together in our celebration of the body and the blood of Jesus and his lordship, I want us to spend some time considering how we might be uninformed in regard to the things of the Spirit. And hopefully we'll be, be drawn by the Spirit to worship God together for his continual grace to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you're working in us even when we're unaware. I pray that we would be a people who treasure your word, that we would delight in the sanctification that comes through recognizing our lack. Whoa. It's one of my gifts. Lord, that we would recognize our lack and we would rejoice in your provision. Unite us around nothing but the Lordship of Christ. May may that be our unmoving foundation, even as we celebrate the gift of Christ in communion. So teach us now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.